Last year was a bit of a mess. Uh, think of the inconvenience, the exhaustion, the division. Uh, but on more mundane, but personal level, for me there was something that was cancelled that uh, just such a bummer for me. I wasn't able to go to a theater and watch a movie. Now, this type of experience has been special to me ever since I was a kid. I mean, going to see the size of the screen, the volume of the sound, where you don't just watch a movie, you experience a film. And two things need to happen in order for that experience to occur. Number one, a film has to be made. And number two, I actually have to go to a theater. Both production and position lead to an impactful experience. And it's something that all of us missed out on. Things were made, but, but I missed out on them. Their release dates are getting pushed back and all that. And maybe last year, this type of thing happened to you. You missed out on a wedding you wanted to be at. You missed out on a funeral you wanted to be at. You missed out on a concert or a, some sort of significant ceremony, like a graduation. You couldn't be in a position to experience it because of what had happened last year. And, and, and all of this is making me wonder with where we're at right now in society and as a church, is there something God wants to do this year? Is there something he's dreaming up and building that if we are in a position to experience it would be so beneficial and important for us in 2021? Um, we say at Central Heights that we have a vision to be a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus, developing healthy churches for the glory of God and the flourishing of our city and the world. We believe that God is present enough, powerful enough, good enough to have such vision on his heart and on his mind. But what would it take for us to experience something like this? Well, the next scene in our, in our series in this New Testament book of Luke actually helps us to identify some of the possible things that put us in a position to experience God's purposes as we start this year together. We're looking at chapter 3. And it's going to highlight the message of a person named John. Now remember, we need to, we need to kind of call back what's been said about him earlier on in, in the story. In Luke chapter 1, for example, in verse 16, it's said that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. See, thus far in, in Luke's writing, it's been clear that God, like a, like a masterful director and scriptwriter, is actually building and moving towards something big. And John, as we enter chapter 3, we, we see that he is entering right after Jesus has been born. And we're tipped off to the fact that Jesus is going to be this coming Lord that he's preparing people for. God's chosen instrument to bring rescue, to bring restoration. It's, it's like this, this rising tension of a drama is unfolding. We're about to get into something that is, is earth-shattering and eternity-shifting. Look at the clues that, that point us to the fact that God is actually up to something big. Clue number one is the setting and the characters. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Feel the tension brewing. Like we know from chapter 1 that Luke is trying to compile an orderly account of this narrative. 
And, and he's taking history seriously. Like if Jesus, if God is going to work through Jesus in history authentically, he's going to do so in a way that interacts with historical people through historical processes. More than just name dropping he, than to help us locate the scene in world history, there's something important about these characters. We have the empire of Rome represented. We have the kingdom of Israel represented. We have the religious system of the Jewish faith represented here. But God is up to something that's not necessarily in these places that have varying levels of power and influence. He's doing something through an unlikely character in an unlikely place. See, more than just him shaping history through a particular who, look at the particular where. We're told about the wilderness here. Like if, if, if you wanted to start a new movement, if you wanted to do something that would, that would change society, be really influential and, and, and actually do something different, how would you go about that? Would you uh, want to kind of be behind the scenes or would you find the biggest stage, the biggest platform, make the right connections, get the right social media influencers on your team, get the right you know, financial supporters? Like he wouldn't pull a Kanye and go partyless into a presidential election. So what in the world is God up to here with this particular person in this specific place? Look at, look at what's going on here. What, what do we make of the deliberate contrast, for example, between the, the religious institution represented by Annas and Caiaphas with, with the, as it's contrasted with the, the anointing of a prophet like John? What significance should we find in that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, a locale that was tied with, with meaning of, of revolution in, in Israel's past, but it's distant from the direct influence of the urban places of power. Like when we, if we knew the story, we would be tipped off. We would be aware of something that is at hand here. Like, like in the Christmas season, Disney Plus dropped this series called The Mandalorian. And there are several key see, uh, scenes in that series that if you were aware and familiar with the Star Wars universe that The Mandalorian inhabits, you'd be, you'd be uh, you know, appreciating the weight of scenes without having them explained to you. Like there were two particular ones where these ships enter and they're, they're flying through and without being verbally told what is happening, because you know what, what these ships represent, because you know where they've been used and what characters are tied to them, what meaning is tied to them, you know what is at hand. And so too it is with this scene here. The places like the wilderness and the Jordan River, they're, they're part of a larger story. Places that echo Exodus and the conquest in the Old Testament, which was about the rescue and the formation of God's people. Could it be that God is building towards this again, a new rescue, a new people? Is this what's going on? The script as well, beyond just the setting and the characters, adds another clue. Look at verse 3. John, it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We'll come back to the concept of repentance in a moment, but verses four to six are a reference to a key part of the Old Testament. This is a citation from Isaiah chapter 40, which would signal to a Jewish audience that something was imminent a new rescue that God's promises were about to be fulfilled. This, you know, add this unique message 
to this specific location of the wilderness. And we have Luke underlining the fact that this is about prophetic hope. Add this specific message with this specific location to this unique audience, an audience that's not the powerful of verses one and two, but the crowds. And we are already being signaled to the fact of what God is up to. It's a foreshadowing of his mission that would be spelled out 16 chapters later in Luke, that God is about coming to seek and to save the lost. This territory that that John is in, in the wilderness, a a piece of that in the past would have been the place of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. A place that was you know, known not for righteousness, but for the emptiness and destruction and the being lost in sin. God is up to something big. And what do we need to do? What is John calling them to, to put themselves in a position to experience this? Go back with me for a second to the, to the theater analogy. Let's say you are aware that a big movie has been made. Maybe it's the culmination of a series of, of, of films that you really enjoy. There's a buzz about it in your social sphere. There's excitement and anticipation brewing as, as trailers are released, as people are starting to theorize about what's going to happen. What are you going to do to make sure that you actually get to experience this in its fullness? Well, number one, you know, you're going to start doing certain things. You're going to make sure you know when the release date is. You're going to make sure you know when the tickets are going on sale. You're going to get a ticket. You're going to, you know, book some time in your schedule to make sure you don't have any other commitments. You're going to drive to the theater. You're going to get your popcorn. You're going to stand in line. You're going to sit in your seat so that you can take in what has been produced as you put yourself in a position to experience it. Both position and production coming together to experience impact. And I wonder if that's so true for us as in this scene, both with God's purposes and humanity's response. There's a couple of things we see about what this text points to in response. If God really is up to something, if he really is building something, what can we do? What do we see here? Number one, first we see the the need for a personal ownership of faith. Look at verse seven. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to raise, uh, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look, we're going to camp out on a repentance in a minute, but just consider something here that we see about faith in God. It must be personal. John is, is, is pointing them to the fact that, you know, it's not your lineage, it's not your ethnicity, it's not your family of origin that is going to bring you to be part of the real people of God. And bridge that now into, into our context, into my context, in, into your context here in this new year. It doesn't matter what your grandmother's faith was. Do you follow Jesus? It doesn't matter what what private school you attended or what Bible camp you were at in the summer. Do you follow Jesus? It doesn't matter what what youth group or what, what church or what podcast has been influential in your life. Do you follow Jesus? Because the whole witness of the gospel is that a relationship with Jesus is not going to be transformative for you until it is personal to you. And one of the most important aspects about knowing and following and loving Jesus is this practice of repentance. 
So look, we're at the start of a new year, and I recently came across an article that described the optimism that most Canadians have uh, about 2021. One particular online survey revealed that 70% of those polled said that they were somewhat optimistic about 2021 because of the COVID-19 vaccines, among other factors, while 15% reported feeling very optimistic. And there's always some fresh optimism around the new year, as if something magical shifts between December 31st and January 1st. But are you curious, perhaps, about the shift that maybe God wants to make, the ways he might want to surprise us in this new year? Some of us, we like to have a, a word for, for a new year, maybe a, a focus or a theme word that, that we really can camp out on for the next 365 days. It's not a bad idea. And before Christmas, I had seen a Facebook post that tried to help people discover their word. And, and what it was was a word search image that said, hey, the first word that you see, that's your word for 2021. Have you ever seen one of those? Here, here, let's let's try it. I'll, I'll put I'll put one up on the screen, and and you need to find the first word, and that word is going to be your word for 2021. Let's let's just practice this here. You got a word? You see one? You got one? Like, imagine if that was how you went about finding your word. And by the way, congratulations to those of you who got the word generosity. Uh, the Lord bless you as you kind of pursue that in his power and his provision. Uh, I myself, like random acts of kindness through Papa John's deliveries and uh, flat whites from Cafe Amarty. So, you know, uh, have fun with that. But, but imagine for a second Jesus had a Facebook page. And imagine he wanted to help us discover a word for this new year, maybe an old word for the new year. And he decides, I'm going to make a word search and I'm going to put this up and this is going to help you find it. And so what he puts up though, you want to try this. Imagine if he put up this. Repentance. I doubt that many of us would be excited right out of the gate for the next 365 days. I think most of us would agree that, okay, repentance is probably a good thing. It sounds churchy enough. It sounds Christian enough, but it, it's, you know, it might be a, a really important thing, but it's not a regular thing. It's not an ongoing thing for me in my life. But look, John is calling people to this, which gets me thinking, okay, what exactly is the place of repentance in the Christian life. With all of our cautious optimism about the new year, is there something we need to see and recapture about this old word for this new year? Let's, let's dive into this a little bit. What is repentance exactly? Repentance comes from this Greek word metanoia. It's a compound word meaning to change one's mind or to alter one's understanding. It combines both rational decision and willful act as opposed to just emotive feeling alone. For, our, for the purpose of our time, we're going to use this definition of repentance, that repentance is a change of thinking that results in a change of living. It's an action, which is why we see in verse 10, the crowds asked him, asked John, what then shall we do? This is a typical New Testament response when people realize that God is up to something big and inviting them into it. What then shall we do? In verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12, tax collectors, these are people who are despised because of the way they charge extra to profit themselves. Uh, they also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, verse 13, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Verse 14, soldiers, probably Jewish ones under Herod, also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. 
and be content with your wages. John's emphasis on repentance shows that in his socio-historical context, the people of the time have been found wanting. There's been something lacking. There's been some need for there to be a change of thinking that would result in a change of living. They needed to distance themselves from the normal social routines and get themselves aligned fundamentally with God's ways, with God's purposes. This, this reminds me of a time back in the seventh grade. I was in a class with an amazing teacher. His name was Mr. T. Uh, he was a big and, and athletic guy, so the, the, the title really fit him. And there's this one particular day where, where he was not going to be there, and so a substitute teacher was going to replace him. Now, our class was known for not being that helpful when substitute teachers were around. We caused chaos. We didn't listen. We, you know, we, we kind of did our own thing and didn't really align ourselves around the plan that a substitute would have. And so Mr. T tried to set us up for this, you know, expressing, here's my wishes. Here's what I want you guys to do tomorrow. This is how I expect you to behave. I'll see you the day after that. Well, a substitute teacher rolls in for that class the following day and it was chaos. People didn't listen. People went their own ways. They were, it, was just, it was just wild. And, and, and what happened, though, in that time was something unexpected. Mr. T, and I don't know if he had planned this, if this was some part of a scheme he had for us, but he was at the back of the classroom at one point, standing there, observing what was going on, seeing that his class was not doing what he had asked, realizing in that moment this, this feeling of sadness and disappointment. So rebukes were leveled, frustration was, ex was expressed, people who were in his good books before were now in his bad books, all except for seventh grade Jesse. See, seventh grade Jesse uh, caught on to something. Seventh grade Jesse noticed a window of opportunity because seventh grade Jesse saw Mr. T coming down the hallway before Mr. T saw Jesse and before the class saw Mr. T. Jesse then, what did he do? He not only changed his disposition towards the, the mode and the agenda of the class against the substitute teacher. No, he also changed his physical position, moving away, not going, you know, and, and distancing himself from everything that was going on so that when Mr. T showed up, Jesse was still in his good graces. Repentance allows us to turn from what we ought not to be doing and to turn into what is God's best for us. And, it's, and, and it, this, this idea of a change of thinking that results in a change of living, it's not an end in and of itself. It puts us in a position to experience God. Look at how John points to this, this idea in the next few verses about experiencing God. Verse 15, as the people were in expectation, remember, because of the characters, because of the scene, because of the script, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, whether he might be the one that, that places like Isaiah, that all the Old Testament was pointing to, this, this coming hope. Is he the one? Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What does all this mean? Like John is clearly pointing to a greater person and a greater promise. And the fact is that repentance could put us in a position to experience such a great one. It's a principle that's similar to what Luke writes in his next book, the book of Acts, about the first Christians and their message. Look what it says in Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. 
that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send who? The Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Baptism of the more powerful one isn't going to just be about symbolic cleansing, but it's going to be about immersion into the person and the power of God himself. And this phrase, the Holy Spirit in the fire, it's, it's caused some confusion even among scholars, but it's probably referring to the dual nature of purification and refinement that comes with God in our life. There's encouragement here. Think back to verse 8. John had talked about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. This metaphor suggests that repentance is not just purely about my effort, your effort, human activity. No, it's about cooperation with God's activity. Repentance is about embracing God's grace. We're called to grow in grace through, through practices like repentance, but it's by grace we've been saved and it's by grace we are going to grow. This is why we see in places like Philippians chapter two, therefore my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look, we can't, we can't miss this principle of grace and the activity of the Holy Spirit as involved with the practice of repentance. If we miss this, this just becomes about religious duty. It becomes about legalism. People are going to at me about, you know, trying to figure all this out in their own effort. It's just going to be about works and not about God's activity with us. We cannot miss this, that repentance it's not a, just a means to an end. It's about putting ourselves in a position to encounter and experience God and it's embracing God's grace. We're not earning anything here. All Christian activity comes out of the identity that God, by his finished work, his perfect life, lived on our behalf as Jesus, as a man on earth. The exchange of our wrong for his right as he dies a death on the cross in our place and his rising from the dead to give us new life, to give us grace and the Holy Spirit to help us, lead us into this flourishing future, perhaps even, yes, in 2021. Repentance is a change of thinking that results in a change of living. And if we want to be people who use this year to know and follow Jesus more, to see the, the health of our church develop, to see our city flourish, to see God glorified, we might need to recapture this old word, for this new year. So what are we going to do? I think we need to understand two things. Number one, that repentance takes sin seriously. And number two, that repentance generates joy. So first, repentance, taking sin seriously. I'm going to guess that for a lot of us thus far, the word repentance has seemed like something for somebody else. We don't necessarily think that we need to repent because we're not sure what we need to repent of. Perhaps it's because we don't know God's work and God's word thoroughly enough to realize where we fall short, where we miss the mark, where sin is actually present in our lives. And so I'm asking myself, where do I need to repent? And I think the story of John the Baptist actually helps us identify this a bit. See, John was considered to be the forerunner of Jesus. Remember, he comes before. He's helping to prepare people to be ready for who? The Lord. What exactly is Jesus Lord of in your life? Like I heard this phrase once and I've never forgotten it. It's that either Jesus is Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. 
to really live in the way in response to who he actually is. He has to be Lord of everything or he's Lord of nothing. So what exactly, I'm wondering, is he Lord of in my life? To help me identify this a bit further, I'm diagnosing this by asking, when is my mind far from Jesus? Like, what are the places? What are the spaces? What are the moments? What are the relationships I have? Where are, when is it? that Jesus is far from my mind. And I think the coronavirus actually surfaced some troubling things for me in my faith and perhaps for the church at large because I think for myself and my peers, the faith in Jesus, knowing and following him, it seemed like it was so much bound up within attending a one hour service on a weekend, but not about a living presence with us all 168 hours of the week. Could the tragedy be that we are only organizing our Sunday morning around a one-hour service about Jesus, but not orienting our whole life around the person of Jesus? When this happens, we start chasing other things that aren't him, things that actually will empty and destroy us, not lead us to God's best. And it's weird, like if we took sin seriously, if we took sin as seriously as God does, we would stop. So how do we know if we're not? I think one of the ways we know if we're not taking sin seriously, that we're not actually practicing repentance or recognizing our need for it, is if we start justifying our behavior and our thinking with the phrase, just one more time. Oh, like just one more time, I'll entertain a rumor. Just one more time, I'll share an inappropriate meme. Just one more time, I'll view pornography. Just one more time, I will compromise to get others to approve of my identity. But this is not the posture that Christians are supposed to take. This is not the way that people who are knowing and following Jesus ought to live. Look at how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 4. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy. Their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Look, when we came to Jesus, whatever was part of our life before, whatever that was, that's enough. That's done. That's over. No more. No more one more time type of stuff happening. We need to move on from this. And some of these things might be obvious, but perhaps there's something more subtle that we need to realize that would drive us to repentance. See, one time I was in Vancouver with my family and we were heading to a fairly renowned local pizza place. So look, pizza's already the best possible meal. We're going there as a family. It's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be a foodie win, Instagram worthy type moment that I'm gonna enjoy. So we get there. I can see the food. I can smell the food. I'm at the table. By all accounts, this is gonna be a um, night to remember. Except the problem was that an hour before we got there, I started to feel sick nauseated. I couldn't actually make myself eat as much as I wanted to. But to everybody else watching, it looked like I was present at the table enjoying a meal like anybody else. And I wonder if that could be you today. Oh, you're giving to the church. Oh, you're volunteering in a ministry. Oh, you're participating in an online service. But you don't really love Jesus. I know this, this, is, this is all too true for me at times. I've recognized recently patterns through, through prayer uh, that I have that I need to deal with in my own life. Things like pride, things like judgmentalism, things like cynicism. And if this is us, if we have, you know, perhaps fallen out of love, even though it looks like we're doing all the right things, maybe Jesus' words from a place like Revelation chapter 2 would apply to us. I know you're enduring patiently. 
and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you'd have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Look, if this is where you are, and this is where I sometimes find myself, maybe the words of another pastor actually help clarify this for us. If we've fallen out of love, we need to confess it. Jesus does not call us to beat ourselves up over this, nor does he call us to work ourselves up into some emotional state. He simply calls us to recognize where we are and admit it to ourselves and to him. Remember, repentance is about both embracing God's grace and taking sin seriously. It's why places like Hebrews chapter 12 point to both of these things. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. We're not the founder. We're not the perfecter. Jesus is who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to grow this year, take sin seriously. Maybe you need some help identifying growth areas and maybe you'd benefit from, from something like a measurement tool to help you assess, uh, assess and take the time to see what might be the places you are falling short. What might be the opportunities by God's grace, with God's help and in community here that you could actually see greater degrees of flourishing through things like repentance. We've developed a measurement tool that we can make available to you. Check out centralheights.ca, send us a message, and we'd love to, to, to help you along in that journey. But look, every spiritual advance is going to begin with distancing ourselves from things that are hindering our obedience to a good and gracious God. Repentance is a change of thinking that results in a change of living. It's not an end in and of itself. It puts us in a position to experience God. It embraces the grace of God. It takes sin seriously, but finally it generates joy. Look at these last few words of our section today. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Catch that word, good news to the people. Verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, so there's an adulterous situation going on there, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. We don't have time today to go into the details of what happened to John. You can read other places in the New Testament to, to get that information, but what I want to camp out on here is the words, good news. How is a message like John's good news? He's used some strong language. You brood of vipers, you pit of snakes. You know, there's an ax laid at the bottom of a tree. There's unquenchable fire. There's this concept of repentance. How could this be good? It's good not because it's nice. It's good because it's true. Something like repentance, it, it, it may not, you know, it's dealing with things that are difficult and broken and, and, and hurtful but it's the only thing that's going to put us in a position to truly experience God. We don't need just nice news. We need good news and we need news that is true. And thankfully, this is the case with something like the gospel, with something like repentance. It's why in James 4, we're told, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Like the further we move from sin, the closer we get to God. Isn't that an exciting prospect? It's why as a church, we're gonna rally around and mobilize towards 21 days of prayer and fasting here at the end of this month to put ourselves in a position for movement, to draw near to God and see him draw near to us. Could it be that God is at work dreaming up and building something significant that if we are in a position for it, we could experience something incredibly powerful and good to see more people come to life in Jesus, to see Christians grow, to see our, our church be healthy, to see our city flourish here and now. Wouldn't you want a front row seat to something like that? I want to pray for us today. And, and maybe where you're at, you want to pray some of these words where you are and, and even just take a physical posture of opening your hands towards God as an act of submission and surrender to go, Lord, I want to do something different. I'm taking this old word and I'm bringing it into this new year. And if you even do that for the first time to begin this journey with Jesus, we would love to come alongside you in that as well. But let me pray for us as we close. Father, I believe I believe you love me. I want to position my life to experience you more. I don't want to miss what you're wanting to produce. So I embrace your love and your grace and I thank you for it. Help me to see where I fall short. Help me to take sin seriously. I want to change the way I think and live. So I'm asking for the power to do this. Would you produce in me the joy of drawing near to you? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.